Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to meet you. I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And, and like uh, Andy was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. So we'd love to invite you to check one of those out. Uh, like Andy said as well, we're going to be continuing on in our series in the Gospel of John. We've been working our way verse by verse through that book uh, for the better part of the last couple months. We'll be in the Gospel of John through Easter. We'll kind of time our study in John with uh, the Easter celebration and connect those dots as we uh, see John's Gospel record Jesus' work in the final week of his life. And so can't wait to get there with you. But uh, this morning we are in chapter 6, the second half of chapter 6. And before we dive dive into uh, John 6 this morning, though. If you're new or you've been gone, I just want to give you a little bit of context that helps frame where we're, where we're headed this morning, right? One of the things that we've talked about a lot throughout our series is that uh, John's kind of like a documentary, like the other Gospels, about Jesus' life. But John's documentary is really unique. It's, it's different because uh, John, he, he ignores all kinds of things the others focus on, and he offers a bunch of new kind of behind-the-scenes footage that nobody's ever seen before about Jesus, or that, that, that rather that isn't included in the other Gospel accounts. And we've seen how the, the reason why John does that is not because he's just trying to like be creative and get some more readers or something like that. But the reason why he does that is because John's writing his gospel about 20 or 30 years after all the others were written. And he's writing it to a group of people that would have been familiar with the other gospel writers' accounts. But the problem is, is that they become too familiar with it. So John's putting, giving them some new stories and some new information about who Jesus was and, and what he did, because what John's after is not just kind of this head-level understanding, a mental, kind of intellectual assent to what Jesus said or did. What John's after is he wants a, this heart-level transformative belief in Jesus to shape our lives and to cause us to come to see him not just as uh, someone who was wise and who had good things to say, but, but as God himself and how that transforms our lives. And so one of the things that we've seen so far in, throughout the Gospel of John is that one of the ways that John tries to kind of wake us up to the magnitude of who Jesus is, is by recounting a number of the miracles that he did. But John doesn't call them miracles, instead he very deliberately refers to them as signs, because in John's Gospel, Jesus' miracles, they're not just displays of power, they're meant to be rather like a billboard that says, hey, there's something up ahead, watch out, keep your eyes open for it. Jesus' miracles are signs that are meant to point us to something beyond themselves, revealing something important about who he is and what he came to do. And last week, as we looked at the first part of John chapter 6, we saw this kind of trifecta of miraculous signs, right? We saw Jesus feeding 20,000 people with just some random kids' mediocre lunch. And then he sends his disciples off across the Sea of Galilee to their next destination. And this giant storm comes up while they're in the middle of the lake. And so he walks out on the water, on, on the waves, and he goes to rescue them in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of their situation. And we fall finally, when he gets in the boat, they immediately they're teleported from the middle of the lake to their intended destination at the end, right? And we saw how all those miracles, they were intended to remind us about Moses, right? This powerful prophet that God used in Israel's history to do a number of very similar kinds of miracles. But while the crowds connected the, the dots between the miracles and between Moses, they failed to see what the sign was actually telling them about Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't just trying to tell them that he was a powerful prophet like Moses, 
What he was trying to help the crowd see is that he is in fact the God of Moses himself. Right? He's not just the mediator of God's provision or rescue or deliverance. He is all those things in and of himself. See, in Jesus' divine identity and his purpose is, is at the very heart of the conversation we're going to see him having throughout the second half of John chapter 6. And the crowds that he had fed the previous day, they come looking for him again the next morning. And, and what we're going to see is that with this increasingly provocative language, Jesus explains to these people who witnessed the miracles but missed the signs exactly what it is he was trying to show them about who he is and what he's come to do. Namely, that he's not really come to just give bread away, but to be bread for people. He's the kind of bread that doesn't just sustain life. In fact, he's come to be the bread that gives life in the first place. It's the kind of bread all of us are really hungry for. It's the kind of bread only the God of Moses can give. And so with that in mind, let's pray. I can't wait to dive into the second half of John 6 this morning. There's so much good stuff in here. Jesus, thanks so much for your word and for our time together in it. God, we're just grateful for it. And we're thankful that, uh, that John wrote these stories down for us so that we might know you more clearly, God. We just come uh, this Thanksgiving weekend, God, uh, full of gratefulness, uh, not just for all that you give us, but most of all, Jesus, we want to come with gratefulness for you. And so we pray this morning that you might help us, Jesus, to not see you merely as a means to an end, but as the end of itself. That we might look to you for life and joy and fulfillment instead of just seeing you as a means to those things. And so might you give us life as we look for life in you. God, I, I can't make that happen, only you can. And so I pray that you would as we study, we pray. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to be in the second half of John chapter 6. Uh, it's a long one. So buckle up, right? And we'll, uh, we'll get through it together. Beginning in verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that the only, only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. And some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were with them, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And so they asked him, well, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. <clears throat> For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you don't believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given to me, but shall raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say that I came down from heaven? Well, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent, them, who has sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. For it's written in the prophets that they'll be taught by God. And everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father except the one who is from God, and only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, and your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that's come down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that's come down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said all this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? For the Spirit gives life, but the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of the Spirit and life, and yet there are some who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's the word of the Lord. So a lot going on. There's like 50-something verses there, and we obviously don't have time to dig into every nook and cranny, but there's some really important stuff that I want to show you. It all begins here in the crowds that Jesus had miraculously fed the previous day, right? They, they wake up and they realize that Jesus and his disciples are not there anymore, and, and so they go looking for him. But like we saw last week, their, their motives in pursuing Jesus are all messed up, right? Their, their motives in looking for him are totally, totally wrong. They've not come to worship him for who he is. They've come to make use of him for what he can do for them. Verse 26, Jesus says to them, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says to them, listen guys, you witnessed the miracles, but you missed the sign. 
You witness the miracles, but you miss the sign. The only reason that you're here is because you're hungry and you want another free meal. And I think it's really easy for us to kind of look at the crowds and just be like, geez, they're so dumb, they just don't get it, right? But the reality is, is that we, I think the reality is that we tend to relate to God like that a lot more often than we'd like to admit. See, the, the real truth is that so often we, we tend to just want God's blessings. We want his favor. We want him to make our lives easier or better or more fulfilling. Or we just want him to take away our problems or to ease the pain that we're in. But we don't actually want him. I encourage you, just examine maybe what you find yourself praying about the most. Are your prayers characterized by asking God for more of himself or for more of his blessings and his intervention in your life? Now, don't get me wrong. It is not wrong for us to ask for God to help or provide or intervene in our situations. I'm not trying to tell you not to do that. But what I am trying to say is that what characterizes your prayers? Because the reality is a lot of times our prayers reveal that the thing we really want is God's stuff, not him thing we're after most, the thing that we cherish, the things we are longing for the most are just the things God can give us, not Him. You see, the good news, though, is that even in the midst of all our messed up motives and all our pursuing Him for the wrong reasons, He doesn't turn us away. Just look at the way Jesus responds to the crowd, right? They come to Him with totally jacked up motives. He's just shown them this miraculous revelation about who he is, and they just come looking for another free meal. And Jesus doesn't respond to them, eh, wrong answer, try again. Right? He doesn't just tell them, move along. He doesn't say, well, you had your chance and you missed it, right? Sorry for you. No, in love, he tells them that they are after the wrong thing. Verse 27, he says it this way, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. See, Jesus tells them they're after the kind of food that spoils, the kind of food that only lasts for a little while, the kind of food that after you eat it, you still get hungry again. You see, but Jesus is trying to tell them the kind of food he has to offer them, it doesn't just temporarily sustain your physical life. See, the food that he has to offer them, the food he wants them to pursue is the kind of food that actually grants life in the first place. You see, the word that John uses here for life is the same word we saw him using back in chapter 4 when Jesus was talking with the woman at the well and he tells her that he has living water to offer her, the kind of water that when you drink it you don't get thirsty again. Right? It's the Greek word zoe. Zoe doesn't refer to physical life. That's a whole other word in the original language. It's the word bios, and that's not the word John uses or that Jesus does. You see, zoe describes, a, zoe kind of life describes a quality of life. It describes a life that's full of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. It's a, not just about existence, it's about life to the full. See, and in telling the crowds that what they really should be working for, what they really should be pursuing with all their energy and might is the kind of food that produces real life, zoe kind of life, not just the kind of life that sustains existence. What Jesus isn't telling them is that food doesn't matter. Right? He's not telling that physical food doesn't matter. 
What he's saying is that there's something you need even more than physical food. He says, in other words, that you have a hunger that transcends your physical hunger. You have a, a thirst that transcends your physical thirst. And you, you, all of us, we sense that. You all sense that because in the midst of all the things we run after to try to quench the hungers and thirsts in our lives, what we find is that even in the best things, they leave you wanting in the end. See, that's because we're always trying to fill up our zoe stomachs with bios kinds of food, right? And we're looking for meaning and purpose and fulfillment and joy and life and all the kinds of things that can never actually give them to, to you. I quoted this when we were looking at John chapter 4, but it's worth remembering again. C.S. Lewis in this book, Mere Christianity, he sums up that, that misplaced longing this way. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but instead only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And so I must take care, he writes, to never mistake them for the real thing, the thing they are just a kind of copy or echo or mirage from. You see, and that's what Jesus is talking about in verses 32 and 33 when he's talking to them about the manna that their ancestors ate. Right, he's referring to how the Israelites ate manna or bread from heaven right? that came down for 40 years while they were in the wilderness. And what he's telling them is that Moses didn't provide that food for them, that God did. But more than that, what he's saying is that God wasn't just the giver of that bios kind of food that sustained your ancestors in the wilderness. He's offering you the kind of food, the kind of hunger-satisfying food that your soul is after, that zoe kind of bread, that kind of bread that the manna was always meant to point you towards. And see, and the crowd still doesn't get this. And so in verse 34, right, they say, well, give us that bread then. Like, that sounds great. We're after that. And Jesus in verse 35, he responds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me won't go hungry. Whoever believes in me won't get thirsty. See, Jesus is trying to tell them that they're hungry for something they don't understand they're hungry for. And that he's the thing that can satisfy them. He's the food that fills up the zoe hole in their stomachs. He's the one that truly satisfies. He's the thing that we're looking for, all the longings in our hearts. He's the one thing that actually satisfies. And you just got to be really important that you see this. Jesus is, Jesus is not saying that he has what you need. He's saying he is what you need. And that is really important that you see that. You see, Jesus does not offer himself as a better way of getting what you are really wanting. He offers himself as the thing that satisfies the hunger in your soul that nothing else can. He's the one thing. He's the one thing that when you get it, it satisfies. See, the reality, uh, John Piper puts it, he says, Jesus didn't come into the world to give bread, but to be bread. He didn't come just to be an ever-ready bellhop for our stomachs, but to be the all-satisfying bread for our souls. See, the problem is, is that so often we just spend our lives looking to the next someone or something to satisfy and fulfill that insatiable hunger in our souls. And what you keep finding endlessly, right, is that the things you keep running after 
Even if they work for a little while, what happens is you keep finding is that more and more they keep just being wells that run dry on you. And the pleasure and life and joy they once gave you, they just, it just doesn't put out like it used to. The spouse that you thought would really satisfy that hole in your life, that new job or that new career opportunity that you assumed would really give you meaning and purpose, the, the house that you thought would finally make you feel safe and at home, the children that you thought would kind of fill that emptiness and that void in your existence, that vacation that you thought would finally give you the rest that you're looking for, that approval from that boss or spouse or whoever else it might be that you thought would finally kind of be that thing for you that makes makes everything else work. All of it doesn't work. It's not filling you up like you thought it was because in your searching in all those kinds of things, what you are really hungering after, Jesus tells you, is your creator and maker and sustainer. In your heart's longing for power, what you're really longing for is the kind of recognition and influence and victory that only a sovereign king of the universe can give you. And in your insatiable need for control over all the variables in your life, what you are really longing for is the kind of safety and security you can only get from a God who is absolutely powerful and yet entirely good. And in your endless pursuit of comfort and freedom and escape from stress, what you are really after is the kind of rest and peace that can only be found by worshiping a God who doesn't need anything from you. And in your desperate need for approval, what you are really after is the kind of unconditional acceptance and love that only a perfect father can give you. You see, Jesus is not just offering you the means to an end. He's the thing you're after. He's the thing your heart longs for in all the other stuff you chase after it. Jesus says, I'm all that you need. Power and control and comfort and approval. People, possessions, positions. None of those things can ever satisfy. Even the best things are just shadows of the real thing we're meant to crave. And they just leave us hungry for more. St. Augustine, he famously wrote this. He says, Oh God, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. See, the one thing that fulfills, the one thing that satisfies, the one thing that gives life is Jesus. He has not come to improve your life. He has come to be your life. So the question is, Will you eat the bread that he's offering you? That's at the heart of the whole dialogue that Jesus has with the people, right? He doesn't just say, I am the bread. Why don't you look at it and admire it, right? Why don't you drive past Sara Lee Bakery, smell how it smells really good, and then just keep on your way? No, he says, you have to eat the bread. I think we can all be honest. Jesus uses some pretty strange language throughout the passage, right? Verse 53, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, they have eternal life and I'll raise them up. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And that's just a little weird, right? You see, but let me just state the obvious, right? Jesus is not like advocating some form of weird spiritual cannibalism or something, right? It's not like, 
Okay, well, I'm out now, right? If we're doing the cannibalism thing, no, right? No, that's not, that's not what he's going on there. And I also want to be clear, Jesus also isn't just uh, talking about communion here. We're going to celebrate communion later, but one of the many reasons why we know he's not just talking about communion here is that Jesus made it plain that eating and drinking, this kind of eating and drinking of him was absolutely essential for eternal life. Right? And if that's the case, then that would exclude every Old Testament saint. It would include the thief on the cross that Jesus himself says will be with him in paradise. And it would exclude all kinds of people who have put their faith in Jesus near the end of their life and haven't had the chance to take communion. And that's not what Jesus is talking about, right? Now, there is definitely connections between the imagery here that we can pull and see some of those connections. But Jesus is not saying communion is the thing that gives you eternal life. That's not what he's talking about. So what is he saying here, right? And all this language about feeding on him, what is he talking about, right? Well, throughout the passage, Jesus uses the language of coming to him, looking to him, feeding on him, believing in him. He uses them all as synonymous metaphors for putting our faith in him. In verse 35, he says it this way, from the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. See, to feed on Jesus, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, it means to come to him and to believe in him. It means to yield ourselves to him, to put our faith in him, to be the one thing that really satisfies the longing in our heart and to keep coming back to him. That's the thing that not just sustains us once, but the thing that keeps filling us up every day. Bob Thune, one pastor, he says it this way. He says, Jesus' command that we must feed on him is such a great corrective to our intellectualized understanding of faith. See, for belief is not just, to believe in Jesus doesn't just mean that we believe some things about him. No, Jesus says that what it means to come to him is to see our need for him, to come to him as a hungry person asking to fill us up. You see, faith does not look at Christ only at a distance, but it embraces him. It takes hold of him. It receives him within just as you receive food and drink. See, the kind of faith that Jesus is after, the kind of faith that John's been writing about the whole book, It's not the kind of faith that looks at Jesus from a distance and admires him, but the kind of faith that takes him into ourselves, the kind of faith that rests on him, that is dependent on him. See, the crowds, they thought they needed to work to receive that kind of bread. Jesus tells them that the only work that's needed is to believe in him. Verse 63, he says that the Spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. Verse 29, he sums it all up. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You see, eating the bread of life, believing in Jesus, is not about something we do. It's about putting our faith in what God does that we cannot do for ourselves. It's about putting our faith in him. Tim Keller puts it this way. The one work that will earn the bread of heaven is to see that no work can earn the bread of heaven. That's how you receive it. It's to come in faith. I want to come to Jesus believing that he is the bread of life who gives himself freely to all those who might put their faith in him. And when we keep coming back to him, believing that he's the thing that really satisfies our souls each and every day, then what happens is you get life. The kind of life that death can't overcome, real life, Zoe kind of life, not just in the end, but now. 
In John chapter 10, we'll see Jesus says that he's come, that we might have life to the full, not just in the end, but here and now, that we might have a life that's full of meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment, that we might have in him the thing that our hearts really long for, not just a life that doesn't end, but a life that's full and never is finished. And the crowds we see in the passage, they miss that. Instead of bracing Jesus as the bread of life, they grumble like their ancestors did in the wilderness. right? Because the bread that God's offered them is not the bread they're interested in. And in the end, we see that many of them leave. It's really important you see this. They leave not because Jesus' words are hard to understand. Nobody, nobody was sitting there thinking, oh, wow, Jesus really is talking about cannibalism. I'm not sure if I can do that. They leave because his words, it says, are hard to accept. They're hard to submit to. See, the crowds, they are coming after Jesus and they view him as a means to their own end whether that's a full stomach or whether that's to be rescued from the political uh, oppression of of the Roman Empire, they see Jesus as a means to an end. But Jesus says that he's the means and the end. He's just told them that he's all they need, that he's the thing that they're looking for, and that to have him and nothing else is to have everything that they're after. And he invites them to lay down all the other stuff that they're looking to and to say, Jesus, you're the one thing I want. You're the, you're the one thing that fills me up and that satisfies in, in the way that none of these things other can. Right? And the crowd responds to them and they just say, no, we're out. We're not willing to give up all those other things. We're not willing to see you, Jesus, as the end. You will be a means or you'll be nothing. They wanted Jesus to conform to their own image and their own expectations. And Jesus would not. We don't have time to do the deep dive on this, but I just want to point out to you something on the side here. See, one of the things that keeps coming up in the passage is that Jesus is not surprised that the people responded this way. He's not surprised by it. Right? In verse 37, he says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. In verse 64 and 65, he says, Yet there are some of you who don't believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them didn't believe and who would betray him. He goes on to say that this is why I told you that nobody can come to me unless the Father's enabled them. Jesus is not surprised that when he offers himself as the bread of life, that people say no. He's not surprised, nor does their unbelief suggest that Jesus has somehow failed. Instead, what he says is that the Father draws those to himself, and whoever the Father draws will always respond. They'll always respond, and Jesus will never turn them away. And I point that out to encourage you. Whether you are troubled by seeing people reject Jesus or whether your heart is breaking over seeing those who seem to be following him turning back from him, you can be confident that God is the one who is doing the heavy lifting in their hearts, not you. 
That if he's called them to himself, that in the end, nothing's going to keep them from him. And so I just want to encourage you, in the midst of all that, when you see your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers, when you see people refusing Jesus or turning back from him, I just want to encourage you, keep praying for them, keep loving them, keep offering Jesus to them, and keep trusting that God is the one who does the work in both bringing people to faith, and he's the one who does the work in preserving people in your faith. And you don't. And so that frees you up to trust him. And it frees you up to keep interceding on behalf of all those that you know and love. That he might draw them to himself. And that he might preserve them in their faith. You don't have the power to do that. He does. And so let your confidence in him lead you to keep engaging in those difficult situations. I can guarantee you the disciples looked back on this situation and they needed that as an encouragement. The reminder that God's the one who's in control of it and he's not surprised by anything he saw. You see, but just like Jesus wasn't surprised that people didn't respond to him with faith because he knew that God's the one who draws them He was also not surprised when Peter responds the way he does right at the end of the chapter. Right? Instead of turning back from Jesus, Peter doubles down on him. Jesus says to them in verse 67, do you also want to leave too? Peter responds, I just love this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter just says, where else are we going to go? Where else, Jesus? Your words are the only ones that give life. No one else's do. Nothing else generates life, just yours, Jesus. We've come to know and believe you aren't just a prophet. You aren't just one who's like Moses. You're the God of Moses, the Holy One. And Peter didn't figure that out. God showed it to him. Matthew 16, Jesus tells him, Blessed are you, for all this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, Peter gets it. Jesus is not a means to one of his own ends. He's not just a path to the life Peter really wants. He is life himself. And so Peter says, where else will I go? That was a gift to him, and it's a gift to you if you've seen Jesus that way. There's one more thing I want to show you this morning. We've got to wrap up our time together. There's one more thing that's so important that you see as we close. The reason why Jesus can be the bread of life that gives life is because he's the bread of life who gave up his own. Verse 51, Jesus says it this way. I'm the living bread who's come down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. He says, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You see, the living bread, it comes down from heaven, not to receive all that he is rightfully owed, but to pay the penalty that we owe because of our sin. You see, there is no other bread like that. Every other bread you and I run to for life and fulfillment and joy, it doesn't, every other bread, it breaks you. 
It just leaves you more hungry and more thirsty and more broken than you were when you went to it in the first place. But Jesus is saying, I'm the one bread that breaks for you. I don't break you, I break for you. The pastor put it this way, he said, he dies in our place, he bears the penalty that was ours to bear, and he raises again in victory over sin and death so that hungry sinners like you and I might feast on grace, that thirsty sinners might drink cups of forgiveness and love and cups of allegiance to Jesus. You see, it's Jesus' substitutionary death for us that we remember and celebrate every week when we take communion. We remind ourselves that he's not just the right answer to the question. But he is the bread who was broken for us. His body and blood broken and shed so that through faith you and I might receive real life that begins now and that doesn't end. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. The only work that earns the bread of life is to come in humble faith, to believe that Jesus is the bread that you are after. And so instead, communion's a chance for us to remember and to celebrate all that Jesus is for us and all he's done for us. And so if you've come to Jesus, if you believed him to be the bread of life, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it in joy as you celebrate his body and blood broken for you, as you symbolically eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, not as a means for your salvation, but as this joyful reminder of all you've put your faith in him to do for you. If you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion. God is not after, he's not trying to get you to go through some religious motions and to just go through and do some religious rituals. He wants you to come to him, to believe in him. He wants you to be satisfied by him. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And he offers himself to us as the thing that satisfies, as the thing our souls are after. And so as we sing, and as we worship God, remembering the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, talk with him. Some of you are here this morning, and you need to come to Jesus and believe in him. You need to see him as the bread of life for the first time. You've spent your life feeding on all kinds of other breads that just leave you broken and hungry, or you've been coming to Jesus like these false disciples who see him merely as a means to get their own ends. And Jesus is here this morning offering himself to you, not as the means to getting what you're really after, but as the thing that you need the most. The bread of life, the living water. And so the question is, will you have him? Will you have him? Will you come and eat of his bread? Will you come and trust in his death? Will you come and embrace him as a savior? Or will you go away grumbling? Because the bread he's offering you is not the bread you want. Others of you are here, and you know the life Jesus offers. You know that he's the satisfier of your souls. You've trusted him to be the bread of life, but the reality is you find yourself hungering and thirsting after other things. You find yourself tempted to keep eating other breads, and you're asking yourself the question, Jesus, you said that if I believed in you, you, wouldn't, you would really satisfy. And the problem is not that Jesus has not satisfied. The problem is that we've stopped eating him. We just have gone back to all the other food that doesn't really fill up 
and doesn't really satisfy, and you find yourself hungry again. Because it's not just that believing in Jesus is the thing that saves you. It's that believing in his hymn is the thing that fills up your heart each and every day. And if you stop eating him, it's not like you're not a Christian anymore, but you will always get hungry if you're feeding on other stuff. Always. So the invitation is that you might come and say, Jesus, remind me that you're what I'm after. Remind me that feeding on you is the thing that fills up my soul. Not just one day, but every day. Ask him to help you to be satisfied in him so that you might experience the life that he died to give you both now and forever. See, in the end, whether you need to put your faith in Jesus to be the bread of life for the first time or you need him to remind you of what you've already believed, God's word invites you to ask him. Ask him to show you what are the false breads you're looking to. What are the things you're running after to fill up those emptiness inside you, to give you satisfaction in life and fulfillment and joy? Ask him to help you see what those things are so that you might turn to him and find life in him. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for our time in your word this morning. God, there's so much more here that we didn't even have time to get to. But I pray, Jesus, that the goodness of your offer and invitation to be the bread of life for us might seep deeply into our souls. And might we come to you, Jesus, not with works of the flesh, but with faith that comes from a heart that's seen you for who you are. God, help us not to witness the miracles and miss the signs, but to see them, Jesus. Help us to see you as the God of Moses, the true bread of heaven the one who fills us up and satisfies us, not just once, but every day. And might we keep coming to you, Jesus, so that our souls might be full to overflowing, and that we might be able to offer you as the bread of life to others. Amen.